0: Imagine your cardiovascular system is the hot water system in your house. Your heart is the pump itself, your blood vessels the pipes, and the electricity providing the water pump with the energy to run is the conduction system of your heart. No matter how functional the electrical system, it won't be effective unless it's pumping water from a healthy pump through healthy pipes. In a household, the electricity needs to be able to smoothly transition from the start of the circuit to the end, reaching the pump prompting its function. Similarly, the sinoatrial node of the heart, located in the right atrium, needs to spontaneously fire, and the impulse needs to travel through the AV node, down the bundle of Hiss, and subsequently into the right and left bundles, and into the Purkinje fibers, through the myocardium, to produce a contraction, expelling blood from the ventricles into the lungs and aorta to get oxygenated, and oxygenate bodily tissues, respectively. In this podcast, we will focus on the electrical system of the heart, better known as the conduction system, and particularly on the topic of rhythm disorders, specifically bradyarrhythmias. What happens when the heart's conduction system, including the sinus and AV node, are not meeting their expectations, resulting in a slower than normal heart rate? Today, our patient has a bradyarrhythmia, and you are the doctor. (laughs) Welcome to the Internet Work, a podcast made by Internal Medicine residents, meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is called Drop the Beat, and is all about bratty arrhythmias. Okay, time for a minute physiology. Just a quick reminder that we post a cheat sheet for download with every episode on our website with further details and resources. Check it out at www.theinternetwork.com. What is bradycardia or bradyarrhythmia? Bradycardia is defined as a heart rate less than 60 beats per minute in most textbooks and online resources. But a slow heart rate isn't always a bad thing. It may be normal in conditioned athletes or while sleeping. It also gives the coronary arteries and chamber of the heart more time to fill decreasing the myocardial demand while improving stroke volume. Remember, the formula for cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. The slower the heart rate, the larger the stroke volume must be to maintain cardiac output. Athletes and patients on AV nodal blocking agents may have heart rates in the 40s to 50s and are completely asymptomatic. Sinus bradycardia can be transient, related to vagal tone, and be physiological, It's not specifically the rate itself that makes a bradyarrhythmia clinically important. It's the symptoms associated with the rate that make them pathological. To review, there are many different types of bradyarrhythmias. They are the result of either sinus or AV node dysfunction. First, we'll discuss sinus node issues. When the sinus node is dysfunctional and causes symptoms, this is defined as sick sinus syndrome. There are a variety of issues that could occur with the sinus node impulse generation and transmission from the atria, that can lead to both brady and tachyarrhythmias. We won't distinguish between every type of sinus node disturbance possible, but some ECG findings are persistent sinus bradycardia, sinus pauses from sinoatrial exit block, or arrest or tachybrady syndrome. Dysfunction of the sinus node typically occurs in patients who are more elderly, as it is a chronic progressive degenerative disorder. Persistent sinus bradycardia is pathologic when heart rates are lower than 40 beats per minute while awake, and symptoms of bradycardia are present. Sinus arrest, or pause, means the atria don't get activated, which may be due to issues with generating the impulse or impulse conduction to the atrium. Typically, pauses of greater than 3 seconds with symptoms warrant consideration for placement of a permanent pacemaker. You may have seen pauses in patients who have atrial fibrillation, who have an atrial tachyarrhythmia that stops, and then is followed by a prolonged time to sinus node recovery, during which no secondary or tertiary pacemaker takes over. This is called tachybrady syndrome. Sinus node dysfunction results from any condition that can cause reduced automaticity and or conduction from the sinus node or surrounding tissue. Etiologies may be intrinsic, for example structural issues, or extrinsic, for example drugs. Idiopathic degenerative fibrosis is the most common intrinsic cause of nodal dysfunction and is associated with underlying heart disease and aging. Drugs are the most common extrinsic factor in node dysfunction. Now let's briefly talk about AV blocks. This is when impulses from the atria take longer than usual to be conducted or are not conducted at all to the ventricles. Based on ECG, AV block can be described as first, second, or third degree complete AV block, and supra versus intra versus infranodal blocks can be determined. The normal PR interval is 200 milliseconds or 5 small squares on an ECG. In a first-degree AV block, the PR interval is prolonged. A QRS complex follows each P wave, but the PR interval is consistently prolonged. This can be the result of delays within the atrium, AV node most commonly, or His-Purkinje system. Patients are typically asymptomatic unless the prolongation is really long, like 300 milliseconds. That can lead to AV dyssynchrony. A way to possibly sniff these patients out would be questions about symptoms with exercise, because the PR interval does not shorten appropriately as the RR interval decreases. In contrast to first-degree AV block, there are two types of second-degree AV block, type 1, also known as MOBITS1 or Wenckebach, and type 2, or MOBITS2. On ECG, second-degree type 1 requires progressive prolongation of the PR interval before a non-conducted P wave while second-degree type 2 has a fixed PR interval and intermittent non-conductive P waves without progressive prolongation of the PR. ECG showing a 2-to-1 block, also called advanced AV block, is when there is only one PR interval before the blocked P wave. You can't tell if this is type 1 or type 2 if there isn't a long enough telemetry strip. The 2-to-1 block could be trouble coming from the AV node or the His-Purkinje system. Typically, an ECG with a wider QRS suggests a block after AV node, while if there's a narrow QRS, then the block is likely an issue within the AV node. Also, the PR in associated beats will be longer if the issue is with the AV node, and shorter if it's an infranodal issue. For example, two to one heart block with shorter PR in associated beats and wider QRS suggests Mobitz II. It's important to tell the difference between type one and type two as treatments differ. Recording a long telemetry strip, providing carotid sinus pressure, Trying atropine and or exercise can sometimes help differentiate. Exercise or atropine will make Mobitz 1 better. For example, 3 to 2, to 4 to 3, 5 to 4 until 1 to 1, and may make Mobitz 2 worse. Facal maneuvers will make Mobitz 1 worse and may improve Mobitz 2. The last type of heart block we'll chat about is third degree or complete heart block. The atrial impulse doesn't go through to the ventricles, so the atria and ventricles are essentially beating on their own. The P waves are regular, beating at their own rate, and the QRS complexes are regular, also beating at their own rate, albeit slower than the atrial rate. Sometimes the P's can be seen marching through the QRS's, confirming AV dissociation and complete heart block. Interestingly, the escape rhythm in patients with complete heart block reveals the site of the block. For example, if the rate is 50-60 to beats per minute with a narrow QRS, the block is likely in the junction while an escape rate of 20 to 40 beats per minute suggests a block further down in the Hisperkinji purkinje system. Similarly to sinus node dysfunction, AV block can be caused by many intrinsic and extrinsic conditions, and idiopathic progressive degeneration causes almost 50% of AV block. Alright, so now that we've reviewed the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. You've been consulted, and your patient in the ER has a bradyarrhythmia with a heart rate of 38. This brings us to the first step in assessing a patient with a bradyarrhythmia, and really for any consult, and that is determining whether the patient is stable or unstable. In other words, asymptomatic versus symptomatic. What are the rest of your patient's vitals? Check their ABCs. What is their GCS or mental status? Always remember to ask for help if your patient is unstable or you're concerned. Try to find out from brief history what type of symptoms they are experiencing. Symptoms are nonspecific, and patients can have chest pain, dyspnea, syncope, presyncope, nausea, and of course symptoms of heart failure from low output and or hemodynamic instability. Bradycardic patients tend to be on the hypertensive side, typically in an effort to maintain cardiac output and perfusion, although when advanced to cardiogenic shock from decreased perfusion from rhythm disturbances, the patient can then become profoundly hypotensive. Factors determining whether the rhythm requires emergent intervention include symptoms, the adequacy of the escape rhythm, and the etiology of the bradyarrhythmia and reversibility. If your patient is unstable from a bradyarrhythmia, activate the ACLS algorithm. This includes maintaining the airway and assisting breathing if needed, providing O2, placing the monitor on if not already for rhythm, checking the rest of the vital signs including oxygen saturation and blood pressure establishing good IV access, and if possible, obtaining an ECG to assist with rhythm determination. If you determine that the persistent bradyarrhythmia is causing symptoms such as ischemic chest pain, shock, acute heart failure, hypotension, or altered mental status, try atropine at a dose of 0.5 milligrams IV every three to five minutes, up to a total of three milligrams. Remember, atropine is an anticholinergic, so it may reduce vagal activity if this is thought to be playing into heart block. If atropine doesn't work, next steps include either transcutaneous pacing or sympathomimetic drugs, including isoproteranol infusion at a rate of 1 to 10 micrograms per minute, epinephrine infusion at a dose of 0.05 to 0.5 micrograms per kilogram per minute, or dopamine infusion at 2 to 20 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Recognizing the effect on heart rate will likely be most pronounced between 5 to 10 micrograms per kilo per minute. If transcutaneous pacing is needed, remember to provide analgesia and sedation to the patient if they are alert. Cardiology should be consulted, and a transvenous pacer could be inserted if necessary. Patients with a reversible cause may only need temporary stabilization until the underlying cause is treated. When the bradyarrhythmia is thought to be the cause of the worrisome symptoms and the rhythm is likely permanent, the patient may require an implantable pacemaker. Keep in mind that it is also important to determine whether it is the bradyarrhythmia causing their instability or some other etiology that you should be focusing on treating first. For example, if the patient is noted to be in complete heart block while having ongoing chest pain and dyspnea secondary to an inferior STEMI, treating the STEMI would be the priority with temporizing measures to ensure the complete heart block doesn't lead to decreased perfusion. If the patient is stable then you have time, take a breath and think things over. After you determine what is the type of rhythm and how to temporize, you can start your workup for etiology. Conditions resulting in bradyarrhythmic disorders are divided into intrinsic and extrinsic conditions causing damage to the conduction system. There is a broad differential for symptomatic bradyarrhythmias, and one can organize etiologies into intrinsic and extrinsic. Intrinsic causes for conduction abnormality would include structural or electrophysiological conditions the most common of which is idiopathic degenerative fibrosis. And extrinsic causes include most commonly a medication effect or ingestion of a toxin. Treatment for sinus and AV node dysfunction always starts with looking for reversible causes. However, if none is found, definitive treatment is required. If the conduction disease is secondary to a systemic illness, including autoimmune, endocrine, or infectious, the patient should be treated appropriately for their condition and then their condition can be reassessed after for further management if it is persistent. For example, if TSH is abnormal and the patient is clinically in myxedema coma, treat this particular cause with IV thyroid hormone and glucocorticoids. If a medication is the culprit, for example beta-blocker and calcium channel-blocker toxicity, treat the toxicity according to guidelines, including glucagon, calcium supplementation, high-dose insulin and glucose therapy, and potentially lipid emulsion therapy. If bradyarrhythmia is secondary to hypothermia, warm the patient. If increased ICP is the culprit, focus on managing the neurological emergency. If the cause of the conduction abnormality is structural or EP-related, it typically requires transcutaneous or transvenous pacing to temporize and will need definitive treatment with pacemaker unless the structural issue can be fixed. A good example of this is an inferior STEMI causing bradycardia. The rhythm is corrected after revascularization using PCI. Patients with sinus node dysfunction only need to be treated if their symptoms correlate to their rhythm. First, rule out or treat reversible extrinsic causes of sinus node dysfunction, and exclude physiologic sinus bradycardia. Unfortunately, medical therapies don't work to treat sinus node dysfunction. You'll need to use transcutaneous pacing or transvenous pacing until a pacemaker can be inserted. AV block is the most common indication for pacemaker implantation. It's important to distinguish between the types of heart block since first degree AV block may not require a pacemaker as the rate of progression to third degree heart block is low, especially in young patients and those without symptoms. Contrastingly, high grade blocks and second degree Mobitz II typically do advance to complete heart block. Those with complete heart block have a very high mortality rate if a pacemaker isn't implanted and therefore determination of the type of heart block is important to determine treatment. Now for our workup. When a patient presents with a bradyarrhythmia, you want to first get an ECG. There you will decide what type of bradyarrhythmia it is. This will help you split it into the categories of sinus node versus AV dysfunction, as mentioned earlier. After that, you want to think through your differential diagnosis and specific patient. Standard investigations included in most workups for bradyarrhythmia include continuous cardiac monitoring and troponins if ACS is suspected, CBC to look at white count if suspected infectious etiologies, electrolytes and extended electrolytes, TSH and chest x ray. Every patient should get an echocardiogram to look for structural abnormalities. And some patients, depending on the age and suspected etiology, may get MRIs or PET scans done to look for infiltrative, such as sarcoid, and other processes. Again, the initial workup should be tailored to the individual patient and clinical assessment patient will likely require an electrophysiology consult if they are symptomatic or the rhythm is concerning. If the conduction issue isn't documented during admission but still suspected based on symptoms, holter and exercise testing should be done. If holters don't catch the culprit arrhythmia, consider external event recorder or an implantable loop recorder for prolonged monitoring. If symptoms occur more than once a month, go with an external event recorder. If symptoms are very infrequent and transient, an implantable loop recorder can be considered. Okay, now we'll go over two quick cases using the knowledge you've learned and to illustrate the variability of the management of bradyarrhythmias in different clinical scenarios. You're on call your first week of internal medicine and just got into your somewhat comfortable call room bed when you get a call from the telemetry nurse that your patient admitted for NSTEMI has a heart rate of 32 beats per minute. You rush up to see him. He's a 56-year-old male. He's lying comfortably in his bed sleeping. He arouses to verbal stimuli and asks why you are waking him up at 3 a.m. He denies any symptoms. You ask for an ECG and it reveals sinus bradycardia. There's a P before every QRS, a QRS after every P, and the P is upright in lead two. The rate is now 46 beats per minute. He had been titrated up to high-dose beta blocker today. He doesn't have significant pauses, and so you leave an order for a slightly decreased dose of beta blocker with hold parameters, and you leave. You're on your way down the hall when you hear a voice call out, resident, hello, team A, can you come in here? I'm worried about this patient. You arrive and your 82-year-old female patient is presyncopal, nauseous, and mildly dyspneic. Her heart rate is 26 on the vitals machine attached to her arm. She had been admitted for general fatigue and failure to cope. ECG shows complete heart block with a slow ventricular escape rhythm. You call a code to get her on the monitor and to get you the medications needed. Cardiology is called and she is transferred to CCU on an isopril infusion and a transvenous pacer is inserted. She is scheduled for a pacemaker in the morning. And now finally, an interesting fact that's worth remembering. If a patient has atrial fibrillation and goes into complete heart block, You will notice that the ECG rhythm moves from irregular to regular, as the QRSs are dissociated and beating at their own regular rate. And that's all. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Internet Work. Again, there's a cheat sheet on our website that you can download for further reference and reading materials. This episode of The Internet Work was written by Dr. Shoshana Blakely-Grossman, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Craig Ainsworth, cardiologist, and Dr. Rebecca Kruselbrink, general internist and intensivist. This podcast was recorded and produced by Leah Karyanopoulos. The Internet Work Series was created by Allison Lai and co-developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karyanopoulos. Supervision by Dr. Daniel Bright Vegas and music by Lakshmi Sandilowen. Thank you for listening to today's episode, and we hope to see you again soon.